This is Paul Nobles from Eat to Perform, and this is an interview that I'm doing with Dr. Brad because of the book that we have, which is We Can Fix That. So currently, we're actually doing this as a live podcast, but if you're listening to this, you're probably listening to it at, um, as it relates to the audio section of the book. So, Brad... Why don't you give a quick, not too geeky um, introduction for yourself and talk to us a little bit about you know some of the various credentials that you have. All right, everybody. I'm, uh, I'm Dr. Brad Dieter. Um, I got my master's and PhD in exercise physiology. Um, I do research. I do biomedical research, but um, probably a, a bigger part of who I am and what I do is each perform. Um, and that's kind of where a big piece of my heart and my passion lies. And it's, it's reaching and helping as many people um, as possible through the work we do. Um, and so I've got a, my background goes everywhere from super hardcore basic science to working with people one-on-one, um, you know, both in the gym and um, I've worked with everything from, you know, five-year-old kids teaching them how to, how to run normal to, you know, very old populations of people. So it's nice to, uh, nice to work with the full spectrum of humanity. Yeah, a big piece of Eat to Perform, you know, for those that don't know, is the PhD level support. You know, we've always made that an emphasis on what we do. And um, Brad is probably the most active. You know, he's kind of my compadre as it relates to trend sheets. We're constantly um, messaging each other back and forth each day. You know, hey, Brad, what do you think about this? Um, and so it's kind of nice. I don't think that that well. I mean, we've talked about this before, right? When we used to charge clients, you know, five hundred thousand dollars a month, that the level of service that you can get with trend sheets, which you know, I believe is a logical extension of we can fix that, right? Because you know, we can fix Very that. Much so, yeah. We'll talk a little bit about that, but we're only going to talk about the book for a little bit because I just want to talk about maybe some of the gaps that that we might have missed but then also kind of move into some of the more interesting stuff so you can get to know Brad a little bit better. Um, so let's talk about that first, okay? If you were looking at a piece of the book and you would say, this sounds a lot easier than it is, what would you say is that piece? Oh, man. Um, honestly, I'd probably say the hardest thing is executing ideas, right? I think a lot of the stuff that we've put in the book is very, very basic, simple informational ideas, but then how you use that in your own life and kind of structure your world to make it work, I think is the hardest part. Um, and I think a lot of that comes down to just not really having the context or experience of I'm a little bit different. How do I apply these to myself? And so I think that's going to be probably the one piece that is, is going to be the most difficult for people is, and it's, it's not that the things are hard. It's that a lot of people aren't open to trial and error. Right. And we talk a lot about this in the book, but you know, so much of the, the implementation and the success is here's the basic ideas. I'm going to try it. I'm going to run with it and I'm going to see how it works. And then I'm going to adjust based on what's working, what's not working. And then we're going to tweak it and move on from there. I think a lot of times people get, you know, A, paralyzed by perfection, and B, assume that kind of hitting a, a dead end or something is a bad a bad thing when actually hitting the dead end is exactly what you want because then it informs you where you go from there. So I think perspective and execution are probably the two biggest things for people to take away of um, what you need to do once you take the information from the book and actually start implementing it. Yeah, I remember talking to Sean Waxman one time who like coaches Olympic-level athletes and stuff like this. And, you know, he did this whole presentation on Olympic lifting and getting in the right positions and stuff like this. And then I just kind of pulled him off to the side and was just like, so how much is the value of weight? You know, how much is the value of leverage? How much is the value of this and this? And he was like, it's all of it. <laughs> right. And I was like, but you didn't cover any of that in your presentation. And and I think that for what you did with the book and really kind of breaking it down simply and, and truthfully, you know, Gina is kind of the nerd interpreter for, for those that don't know <laughs> Gina Patterson yep. on staff, you know, basically takes 
you know, all of the nerdy geeky information that Brad and Mike and, you know, all the other, the folks, you know, put out there and kind of break it down into kind of layman's terms. I would argue that that's a little bit of what I can do as a special skill as well. And so, um, but what I wanted to get to was just kind of the mental side of things, right? Because I think that, you know, a lot of people come in thinking that fat loss is their problem when in fact, you know, fat loss, you know, it may be a symptom of a bigger problem, right? But wouldn't you argue that the good majority of what we do on a daily basis is kind of on, on the, the gray matter side of things? Yeah, I'd say a huge piece of what, you know, our daily coaching looks like um, is really on the gray matter. I mean, I don't know how much, see, the thing is a lot of people, the clients that need to perform don't see the inside. So they don't see, you know, what, like, for example, Paul and I do on a daily basis and the amount of people we work with and also the amount of attention those people get um, and what that communication looks like. And a lot of it really is the in-between-the-year stuff of, you know, here's the plan, but there's so many pieces to get there. And that's a lot of what we talk through with people. Yeah. And I think the other thing too, is that, you know, cause a lot of the videos that you'll make personally for the private groups and stuff like that really talk about what the long term looks like. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, how you came to fitness, right. And then ultimately what, you know, kind of pushed you into the exercise physio side of things. Yeah, so we'll leave all the the nerdy sciencey stuff out of it, and we'll just talk. You know, basically from the is, you know, at one point in my life, I think I was like, you know, eight. Actually, I was probably nineteen years old. Um, I had just gotten super, super sick. Like literally, um, I went from like one ninety to one fifty five in about six weeks. Couldn't get out of bed. Couldn't do a lot of stuff. And realized it was a lot of my kind of life health choices I was making. You know, I was nineteen. Wasn't, wasn't really taking care of myself, wasn't exercising. Um, it kind of had just stopped kind of playing basketball competitively and taken a break and kind of had gone downhill and realized, okay, this is something I need to get control of so I can kind of have a healthy life because there's a lot of things I wanted to do. Um, and just like everybody else, you know, the first step I took was just getting to the gym. And it started out with like, you know, reading this and reading that and doing a few things. And it took me probably six months to realize, like, I mean, I worked my tail off for probably the first six months and the amount of progress I saw was kind of small, right? I mean, it was like, didn't get huge, didn't get jacked, didn't get shredded. And I'm a 19 year old dude. And I'm like, okay, if I can't do this in six months now, what does that really mean? And should I fold in the towel? And I remember having a conversation with one of my friends and he's like, you know, you just got to take the long view, right? You're 19. Don't worry about what you're going to look like at 20. Worry about what life's going to be like when you're 40 and 50. And it's that kind of thing that has always just kept me progressing forward. And so I know that there's, you know, weeks or months where I'm not going to see super, super stellar progress because of X or Y or Z, but I just always take the long view because then what happens is all the short, the things that happen in the short term that aren't perfect. You know, I have a weekend where I'm sick or I, you know, have an injury or I'm traveling and can't eat well or whatever. It's those things all kind of, don't become these big obstacles, right? They just become steps in the journey to where I want to be in the long term down the road. And that's really helped me always maintain my focus. And I've never really taken a long time off or, you know, kind of fallen off the wagon, so to speak, because I've just kind of put my whole life on the wagon. Yeah, I, I, I would argue that, um, I mean, I live near high school, right? And so obviously, high school exercise is run around the high school, right? So there's there's all these like 135 pound, you know, five ten kids, you know, that that have abs, <laughs> you know what I mean? But like they just yep. look so skinny, you know. And um, I think you know most of those kids are like, hey, you know, we'll see some of those kids at the CrossFit gym that I work out at, and and they'll come up to me and they'll be like, hey, look, you know, um, what do I need to do to put on muscle? I said, well, first of all quit running all the damn time, you know, like, like <laughs> let's lift some weights, you know, and, and, and really kind of push that side of things. I know you do a fair amount of Oli training now. I mean, talk to us a little bit about like the progression of, of where you went from a weightlifting standpoint, because I think that a lot of the times people look at, you know, young folks, you know, cause how old are you, Brad? 28. Okay. So you're 28. 
you know, so obviously your your muscle window is still there, um, and you you've been able to put on a fair amount of mass. I know you're actually currently in a phase where you're desperately trying to put on even more mass. Um, <laughs> but uh, I just feel like you know, for people that are my age, which is close to fifty, you know, they almost get despondent about it in a different way than, than the way that I look at it, you know, cause I mean, even if, even if you're to the weight game a little late, you know, you still have a lot of opportunity. I mean, you know, 60 minutes, they're talking about organ regeneration like every damn week, man. I mean, we might, be, we might be living to 200 <laughs> real soon here. It's time to get your weightlifting on. So talk to us a little bit about that, that journey for you. Yeah, I think there's, you know, there's, there's so many ways to look at this piece. And I think the first one is, just realize that like building muscle tissue is an expensive, hard process, right? It's, it's one of those things where you've got to make a very concerted effort to do it. And you've got to give yourself a substantial amount of time to do it. If you look at anybody who's naturally added a lot of muscle mass is it's taken several years at a minimum, right? I mean, there's, there's the genetic freaks out there who, you know, six, eight months of training, they can put on a lot of size, but I know for me, I mean, it's taken me six, eight years to even put on a decent amount. And that's just because it takes time. It depends on how much time you have to train. Um, <clears throat> so you've got to kind of give yourself a, a wider window within to work, right? So I, you know, Paul just mentioned, I'm kind of in a phase where I want to, you know, put on about 20 pounds or so. Um, <clears throat> and at no point in that phase have I said, I've got to put on 20 pounds by March 15th or by May 1st, right? I'm like, okay, there's the goal. I'm just going to keep working my tail off and doing all the things I need to do until I reach it. And so I think that's the first piece, kind of that mentality. And the second piece is realizing that the, the age piece with regards to putting on muscle is more a product of work capacity and the work you do than it is an inherent age number, right? So a lot of times people who are younger have a higher work capacity because their recovery is better they're, they haven't had 20 or 30 years of sedentary behavior kind of that they're trying to undo. So if, you know, if you're a 50, 60 year old person, um, who kind of wants to focus on that piece, if you give yourself a long enough amount of time and you put in the volume of work, your ability to build muscle isn't drastically different than somebody who's in their thirties or forties. So you got to kind of accept that there's a, a little bit of a difference, but it's not as big as you make in your head. Yeah. I mean, you know, I knew kind of the history of this client, but we had a 65-year-old female that was 125 pounds, and I think I ended up setting up her calories, like her high-end calories were like 27, and her low-end calories were like 23, right? Um, that's the only way that you're going to be able to put any significant amount of muscle. People are in this, like, hope that they can kind of, you know, I mean, obviously a big part of the book, and we can talk about that before we move to the fun stuff, but... You know, big part of the book is is kind of finding that sweet spot, right? And then you're where you're eating enough, but you're also having enough work capacity where you're putting on enough lean mass, and that maybe the weight would trend down a little bit, but we don't want to get to a point where you know we're going through these huge deficit cycles that could cost you muscle and cost you work capacity over time. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think one of if if you're main focus is to put on some lean muscle tissue. You have to do a good job of staying in a calorie surplus for an extended amount of time, right? The, a lot of people chase the put on a little bit, lose a little bit of fat, put on a little bit, lose a little bit of fat. And really all you're doing is spinning your wheels, right? You're really not putting your body in a position to achieve the goal that you want to achieve. So one of the things that we can pretty much tell you without any ambiguity is that putting on muscle tissue is substantially harder than fat loss in terms of what it takes work-wise and what it takes food-wise. So if you're somebody who's like 130 pounds and you want to eventually be a 145-pound lean person, the approach of I'm going to eat a substantial amount of food and do a substantial amount of work and get to like 150 and then maybe dial it back with some fat loss for a targeted focus, but it takes you two years of being in a building phase, that's going to be a monumentally better approach than saying, Oh, I'm going to go to 140, Then I'm going to come back to 137, Then I'm going to go to 142, and then come back to 140. You're just never going to get there doing it that way. 
Yeah, and I think that what a lot of people don't realize is that they're the the least amount of food you eat over time, it kind of is almost a self fulfilling prophecy. Prophecy, like like people say, well, um, you know, let's say three thousand calories. You know, you would say, hey, you know, you could potentially be eating up to three thousand calories, right? Let's say that there's a guy that's eating twenty two hundred calories right now and he's not getting fat loss, and you say to him, you know, you should eat, you know, you can eat three thousand calories. People naturally assume they're going to gain weight in that scenario, and they're almost always wrong, right? Because not only does your, you know, non-exercise activity increase, you're naturally going to get in more steady state work, you're going to have more energy throughout the day, your workouts are going to be better, you're going to potentially be building lean mass. Doesn't make an, you know, it's not making an argument against having some, you know, I mean, like within eat a form. You know, we typically have like five days where you would kind of be at a surplus. And for the most part, it sort of depends on how we set your calories. But you would have those two days where you're being a little bit more um, conscious of things. But even like in the case of the low day, you know, um, you know, one of my Division One athletes, you know, her low day is like ridiculous, right? Most, I mean, her low day, um, I looked at it. You know, I didn't really pay that much attention, but her low day was a little bit higher than her medium day, right? So she could recover a little bit better. So, um, so anyway, that that's the geeky part. Um, did is there anything you wanted to add before we move on to the fun stuff? Um, no, you should buy the book. That's the only thing I'll add. <laughs> yeah. No, I really, I really think that that if you look at the book. It's a, it's a culmination of the four years worth of work that we've done in Eat Perform. And I would say that in the last you know six to eight months, the progression that we've been able to make, especially with trend sheets and stuff like that, and how we can communicate that to customers is, is so huge. Um, so talk to us a little bit about video games. Talk to us a oh, little bit man. about... Talk to us a little about about that nineteen year old period where you were just like <laughs> you were just like this skinny you know wafy kid you know and you were Dude, like, I'm gonna I'm gonna find some old pictures so you can post them along with this podcast. That would so, be awesome. I should I'll, I'll go back to like way back in the day. I'll give you guys the uh, the Brad Dieter childhood snapshot. So growing up, I pretty much did two things: I played basketball and I played video games and. Uh, and then the third thing was I drank a lot of Mountain Dew. So that was pretty much my, uh, my childhood was I was either outside of playing basketball, getting my knees dirty, or I was playing a lot of video games. And uh, in, in college, we actually played Halo like semi-professionally slash competitively. We, were, uh, we had a group of people who that's pretty much whenever we had free time and probably even times we should have been in class, we, uh, we played a lot of Halo. Okay, uh, I, need, I need to stop you right there. When you say professionally, how much were you earning professionally playing Halo? We weren't like we weren't making money off of it. But okay, we were, then you like, weren't a professional. You weren't a professional. We were like, That's the well, nature was, of being an amateur, Brad. This is this is the uh, this was pre Twitch TV, pre esports. This was like dude, this was like two thousand and what seven? Yeah, so this was this was like we'd like play in local stuff and you'd win like free games and free xboxes and stuff like that so there weren't like big yeah. huge prizes but we uh we played in a lot of tournaments and, and online stuff well it was you know, ridiculous. obviously you know my history of online poker and stuff like that and being successful with that and a lot of people don't equate that to a video game but that's exactly what it was you know yeah and so, i was not nearly as successful as, as you were yeah. on the financial end of those kind of things but you know you see that like a lot a lot of the guys that that um well, in poker, uh, did you ever get into Magic the Gathering? I played probably three or four games of Magic the Gathering, and it was just way too slow-paced for me to play. That's probably why I couldn't. Okay. I wouldn't so have you, never done well in online poker. So you couldn't have... No, no, online poker is way different. Um, online per poker is like perfect for ADD because you have to, oh, you have to be so super focused. Um, but in terms of uh, that was like like tournament poker, right? At the World Series of Poker, you you know I'm like so ADD, I can't sit down the good majority of the time. 
But when you start focusing in on people's behavior and you start focusing in on the things that they're doing, it, it really does kind of take things to the, the next level. So in terms of you, you mentioned Mountain Dew. I, I think it's sort of funny that that people will hear that and go, OK, here's this doctor. He's you know, he's obviously talking about people eating relatively well. I mean, when did that piece start to come in place for you? And, and, and what would you say? I mean, even now, you know, I know you eat pretty flexibly. Yeah, man, I, I can tell you, like, my journey was everywhere from I used to literally have a diet of Costco muffins and Mountain Dew to I went as super hardcore paleo as you can be to more flexible dieting to I've kind of spanned the whole spectrum. Um, some of those were planned and some of those were experiments and some of those were just my own evolution, right? You kind of, you start somewhere, you learn some skills, you start to kind of get to a point where it becomes everything in your life, right? That's kind of, you identify with like, okay, I'm the person who's healthy. I eat clean. I follow these strict guidelines. I'm morally superior because I haven't had a, a gluten containing item in like six months and all those things. And then you start to kind of develop a more, stable balanced approach and, and kind of start to really see the truths and things so my kind of evolution went through the whole spectrum of it um and i think that's a fairly natural progression for a lot of people okay and you kind of see that over time okay so we're, we're getting a little too geeky here so um dun dungeons and dragons <laughs> were you ever a dungeons and dragons guy you know where this interview is going brett i'm i'm I'm, I was never. I'm, I can I'm tapping this. I was your level never of Dungeons door. and Dragons guy, but I was. Uh, and it was. This is going to be embarrassing. It was because my mom wouldn't let me play Dungeons and Dragons. Why? Because it was, it was too freaking violent for her. So I couldn't. I was not allowed to play Dungeons and Dragons. It wasn't. It wasn't like a devil thing. I mean, because I do kind of remember that that people were against it because you know it was going to make you like worship the devil or something weird. I don't know. My mom was one of those people when she said something, I never questioned her about it. She was just like, no Dungeons and Dragons. So I was like, okay, mom, no Dungeons and Dragons. Okay, now that might be the geekiest <laughs> thing that you've ever said. Um, but so, okay, so in terms of uh, basketball, right? So basketball, that would have been, um, talk to us a little bit about basketball. What was the what was the highest level you ever got with basketball? What's the best game that you ever played? And who's the coolest person you ever played one-on-one -on -one with or in a group? Um, man, let's see. There, my basketball career, people don't know this about me. So I played um, – I'll just give you the full story, man. So my freshman year, I walked into high school going from like private school basketball where I thought I was the, the end-all, be-all because I was like the coolest kid in eighth grade. Walked into my freshman class of like first year private or public school, five foot six, 135 pounds. Little kid, just got my, I got my ass handed to me the first day of tryouts. Um, freshman year didn't play very much, but by the end of the, by the end of my sophomore year, I was on the varsity team. The team captain, my junior and senior year, we actually um, went to the state final my senior year and lost to a team that had um, two players who ended up playing in the NBA. So Peyton Siva and. Uh, one other kid from their team, um, Avery Bradley, he played. Oh, yeah. He still uh, plays for the Boston track. Celtics right now. Yeah, so I played against them. Um, then, let's see, played. I went to college. Um, I played on the practice team at WSU for a year because I knew I was never going to make it in the NBA, so I decided WSU I should focus on WSU being that. Washington State University? Yeah, so Washington State. Decided I should focus on Halo and schoolwork instead of basketball since my uh, – my jeans were not cut out for NBA, but played on the practice team for a year, and that was a ton of fun. Um, so let's see. Over the course of my career, I played against Adam Morrison, Aaron Brooks. Um, who else did I play against? Rodney Stuckey, um, Isaiah Thomas. A lot of those guys we played with for a long time. Um, beat a couple of those guys. So it's always it's really weird to see people like that you know, now making a, a ton of money. Um, probably the coolest thing ever in my career was when I, I coached uh, – I was a strength conditioning coach at Gonzaga for a year. Yeah. Um, and that was the year that Kelly Olenek went from being a bench warmer to a lottery pick. Um, and I worked with the strength coach who kind of basically taught the kid how to walk. I don't know. There's a, his freshman year, he went to run to the scores table to check in and he tripped over his own two feet in front of everybody. Wow. Um, and so 
we, uh, we worked with him and that was kind of a cool transformation. So my basketball career kind of ranged the, the whole spectrum. That's cool. The, you know, so talk to me a little bit about that because, you know, one of the things that I've seen, you know, with kind of just a real secondary view of athletic programs and colleges and stuff like that, I, what would you say would surprise people the most as it relates to strength and conditioning and as it relates to, to nutrition? And don't get too geeky on me here, Brad. Um, 98% of college athletes don't care what they eat. Um, they just eat as much food as they can and as often as they can. Um, and their strength conditioning programs are far less structured than 98% of the people who are buying programs online. Um, it's at least for the last 20 years, that's how it's been. Um, a lot of programs are just let's get the kids stronger and make sure they're eating enough. That's really what it is and keep them injury free. Yeah. And it's really the eating enough part that that's kind of a big deal. I think one of the, the struggles that I've seen at the University of Minnesota is that there's a lot of bad information as it relates to the women. So I don't know how much interaction you have with the women um, at Gonzaga, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of social pressures to stay, you know, a certain weight or whatever, yet, you know, you see a lot of these super athletes that are not, you know, 116 pounds, they're 175 pounds, and they're the ones dominating the sport, right? So um, I think that uh, most people would be very surprised to know that there's not a whole lot of nutrition information, even on the pro level, right? Um, that was a big thing when, um, you know, this is probably, you know, because you have some familiarity with Oregon, but um, what's it, is it Chip Kelly? Um, what, yeah. Yeah. So when he started talking about nutrition to people, people were like super freaked out about it, you know. And I remember when the Lakers were talking about it and LeBron James and those guys started going low carb. There was You just started to realize how little information there was as it relates to nutrition and most of the guys you know um one of the guys that i know a little bit i don't know him really well but um uh james townsend who played in the nfl for a while if you've never seen james i mean his basically his his abdomens look like your biceps you know he's got eight abdomen he's got eight <laughs> biceps on his abdomen he's probably the the most imposing guy you will ever see in real life and i mean He's like, I got to eat McDonald's. If I don't eat McDonald's, how the hell am I going to get, you know, all the calories that I need? I've never seen anybody, you know, I, I was at a workout with him and he literally worked out for eight hours straight. And I mean, everybody else in the room, you know, was just baffled at how this dude was still going, you know. But if you don't have, you know, some level of high calories or some way to get in those calories, you know, it's really difficult to do that. Um... So talk to us a little bit about um, just kind of the 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 geeky experiences of being around PhDs and being hot as hell, right? Like, are are you the are you the hottest PhD you've ever seen, or is there uh, someone that they, oh. that is hotter than you? There. Okay, I went to a conference last year, and there was one other dude who was there who was about my age, and I looked over at him, and I was like, dude, you're better looking than me. This kind of pisses me off. <laughs> so I was like, uh, I was like, man, I think he might take my title. No, uh, you know, it's, man, it's an interesting world to live in. I can tell you yeah. that. It's, I mean, you, you deal with people who are the smartest, most socially awkward people on the planet, um, and then you deal with people who... I look at them, I'm like, I have no idea how you got to grad school. And it's such an interesting field to work in. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting. One of the things is, you know, people always say, you know, being pretty in life is, uh, makes it easier. Um, it's definitely an interesting thing when you're in a, in a room or a conference with people um, and you definitely stand out from that perspective. It actually kind of works the opposite way sometimes. So it's, it's an interesting dichotomy sometimes, obviously, especially being young too. Obviously, I'm teasing you a little bit, but I mean like, you know, in the jock world, right? 
you know, you were kind of a part of that, but then you were also in in the the smart kids world as well. I mean, talk to us a little bit about about the juxtaposition there. Yeah, you know, that's a it's an interesting interesting dichotomy to live through. Um, you know, you've definitely got stigmas from both sides, and you know, I'm one of those people who I'm going to embrace both stigmas, right? I've got two very very different sides to me. I've got the very very hardcore nerdy science person. I mean. You should see the books on my nightstand. I've got fantasy novels out the yin-yang. Um, it will always be that way. But, you know, I'm also the the diehard gym bro. So it's, it's you get a really pull from both directions, which is kind of cool. Well, and, you know, we're, we're sort of teasing about the, the good-looking thing. But in exercise physiology, obviously, good-looking people do gravitate towards that, right? You know, you're going to see more gym people. Kind of, yeah, for sure. There's definitely going to be some vanity type stuff going on there, um, but yeah, the um, what I would say that is interesting as it relates to kind of research work and stuff like that is if you've ever listened to any of our, you know, we've had so many PhDs on our podcast, and when you listen to them talk, they can explain their position well. The problem is, is that when it gets related to people on NPR or, you know, on BuzzFeed article or something like that, <laughs> you know, it's got to have, you know, and, and we're as guilty of as, as anybody, right? We put memes and articles and stuff like that as well, because we're trying to entertain while give the message. But mm -hmm. don't you feel like that is a little bit of an overrated kind of thing um, that, you know, people can't communicate with, with, you know, PhD level folks or people that are researchers and, and, you know, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that's a, a big misconception. You know, a lot of times we live in two very different worlds in the way that we communicate, like the way, I mean, the conversations you and I have, Paul, we all, we almost never talk in the same language that I write a paper in. Um, and so, you know, I think it's it's one of those things where people kind of put you in a box and you're really two different people. Um, and so there's are a lot of times we can actually do a better job of, of getting a message across because we've got a little bit more nuanced understanding and can communicate those ideas to people because we've had to do that time and time and time and time again. And we've kind of refined our ideas and then we get them in front of people in a little bit more cleaned up way than a lot of times just the the word vomit that a lot of online blogs are right that just aren't really well thought through and aren't characterized and just a big sloppy mess so i think it's we actually have a benefit from both sides of that piece okay so what is your favorite we're going to get to the the good stuff here um favorite hip-hop song oh um it probably have to be off of the Tupac album, um, Loyal to the Game is probably one of my favorite songs. Okay. Very, gotcha. very old school. Okay, movies. Talk to us. What's your favorite movie that when it's on, you cannot stop from watching it? Um, probably, I'd probably have to say Inception's my favorite movie. That or Shawshank Redemption. I actually probably say Shawshank Redemption is number one because Morgan Freeman is just too good to pass up. Okay, comedy. Give me a comedy. Comedy. What makes oh, you laugh? Dumb and Dumber. Really? Oh. I find I find an opportunity in every single day to quote Dumb and Dumber, regardless of the situation. It always happens. That's funny. Like I was listening to the Mark Barron podcast. You know, Mark is kind of like this highbrow comedian. He's like nothing. Mm -hmm. Nothing makes me laugh more than the slapstick guys the guys that are falling <laughs> down on the stage and stuff like that so you, you you have that in in common um so favorite place to go with your fiance um we just went to mexico in january and that was awesome it was uh, nice to get away i just i like places that are super low-key um and you can kind of just still get outside and you get a mix with the locals. It's not super expensive. It's not ritzy. It's kind of just more down to earth. Tequila doesn't hurt. You know, it's, it's uh, it was, that's probably my favorite place to go. 
Is it, what part of Mexico? Cabo San Lucas is where we went. Okay, so so kind of nice. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like uh, I mean, you could walk around in the streets and and it was like you you feel safe, but it wasn't like we weren't staying in like a super ritzy place or anything. So we stayed at a place called La Mazania, I believe it was called, um, and it was very uh, authentically Mexican experience. And so I got, <laughs> I, I got to tell you, um, it was awesome. It was it was awesome. Like the beach there is amazing. Um, I don't know if I would recommend it to everyone because I don't know that everybody's down for this plan. You know, I don't even know that I was really down for the plan, but I really, I remember it fondly, but we were staying at an eco-friendly place. And uh, one of the things that we were able to do was uh, release turtles, right? (laughs) I mean, this is an interview about you, Um, but um, so, but the, but the thing that I remember the most was because because it was an eco-friendly place, you know, there was no like chemicals on the floors and stuff like this. And, um, you know, when you're from the U.S. and you're looking for comforts of home, you know, I remember going to get ice cream. So we bring the ice cream back to the place and I'm just dying for ice cream at this point. And it had chocolate on the outside and I went to bite into it, and a big piece of the chocolate, like like half of the chocolate, fell onto the ground. <laughs> and I picked up the chocolate and ate it. And you're like, I'm eating it, dude. I don't even care. And I got like the biggest hair. <laughs> oh. I, st- I am still scarred because I don't know if that was rat hair. I don't know if it was human hair. I just know I was at an eco-friendly place and <laughs> like some real, I still feel scarred from that shit. Yeah. Uh, here, I'll, uh, I'll show you some before and after pictures of before we started drinking margaritas. Here's the before picture. I don't yeah. know if you can see that. Yep. Yep. It, and then here's, it's a nice here's an little, hour later, the after picture, nice little cordial <laughs> picture. The, the second picture is they're, they're struggling, but that was, that was the same night. We, uh, we barely made it home. So Mexico is a lot of fun. Yeah. No, the, um, yeah, the, uh, we, we, we ended up going to Mazatlan one time and, um, we do kind of like look for the local experience. And so when we were in Mazatlan, we were at kind of the big resort. So I had like one of the cabbie guys, um, uh, take us, uh, into the the fishing side of Mazatlan. Oh, yeah. And then, um, you know, he offered for us to come to his house, you know. And so I couldn't turn that down, like if you really wanted to authentically. And uh, it was really cool. You know, it was really cool to see his family and 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 just kind of experience that. I mean, I don't know that, that you know, um, most people get to see that. So that was, that was kind of a nice thing for us to experience. And we've actually done that a few times. You know, the best thing that you can do if you really want an authentic experience in any country is just have the taxi, like seriously, buddy, take me where no one else will want to go, you know? Um, and it's, it can be a little scary, you know, cause like my girls were young, but it, it's also fairly rewarding. Um, in terms of where you are, Right, because I know that that obviously you lift weights and and stuff like this, but do you do any kind of hiking or rocks or anything like that? And you know, where would you go? Or what's yeah, the coolest place that you've ever gone doing stuff like that? Um, man, let's see. We, the thing is, like where I live is, I mean, right out my backyard is some some of the best hiking in the world. I mean, I'm in the Pacific Northwest, so we go up. Schweitzer Mountain is, is pretty awesome. You can kind of go up and you can see everywhere. Um, probably the, the best thing I've ever done, I took a spring break to Sun Valley in college. Um, and, you know, we were broke college students, so we could only afford a few days of skiing at the resort. So one day we just threw our skis on our backpack and hiked up one of the local mountains. Um, and we got to the top. It was probably like an eight-hour hike to the top in ski boots. And we got to the top and you could see – like the whole Sawtooth mountain range. And that was super cool. And then it took us about, you know, 10 minutes to ski down. So it was eight hours of work for 10 minutes of skiing, but, um, that was pretty cool. So yeah, I try to get out. I mean, probably we try to go every weekend for, you know, a good four or five hours, but, um, just depends on the weeks and stuff. So 
yeah, we try to get out as much as we can. I do a lot of hiking. Um, I try to ride my bike. Just do a lot of, you know, we go stand up paddle boarding, kayaking. We take advantage of all the other stuff too, because life is about more than just, I mean, the gym's great, but I'd rather do a lot of other fun stuff that's a little bit more rewarding than just pumping iron in the gym. Yeah, I mean, don't you think that that's where, you know, I know a lot of people will go, you know, my deadlift day is on Saturday and I go there at eight o'clock and it's like, if somebody offered me a chance to go canoeing or go on a hike, I'm 100% skipping deadlifting. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think that, that you can get too rigid with too much of that type of stuff and, you know, it, it, it just... Plus, you can always you can always deadlift on in December, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you, can't, you can't canoe in December, so, yeah. And, and that's, 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 that's the biggest thing my fiance's taught me, too. She's really good about... Hey, uh, let's go do something instead of going to the gym. I'm like, eh, yeah. So, what's your fiance like? We don't we tell tell the eat reform land. What's uh, what's this? She's oh, married. Man. She's married into the family. You gotta let us know what's going on. Yeah, so she's a she's an ER nurse. Um, so she she's one of those people who like she's probably got the biggest heart of anybody I've ever met. Um, we actually met first day of work orientation. She uh, was sitting like two tables away from me the whole time. I just kept staring at her. It was kind of creepy, but um, it worked. So yeah, she she's an ER nurse. She's a collegiate all all American um, man. She's just she's one of those people that you just you meet once in a lifetime, and she uh, it's just it's kind of hard to put into words. You know, one of those people you know will always be there to to put other people first. It's she's she's pretty awesome. She's tiny. She's like five foot three, hundred and fifteen pounds. She, uh, we go shooting a lot, so I'm kind of terrified if I ever do anything, she can, uh, she can outshoot me in almost any competition we ever do. So, so I, I got to make sure I keep myself in line. So that's interesting. I didn't know this. So what kind of gun do you have? Um, I've got, I've got a couple shotguns. Um, I've got a rifle and I'm going to pick up probably some handguns here in a couple of years. We, we're one of those people we like, we go to the range, we're very safe. We're not like shooting in the backyard. Um, it's just. It's kind of a fun hobby for us, um, something to go do. She grew up doing it. Um, I grew up in a family that was very much the opposite. So I'm one of those people who, whenever there's something I don't know or I'm kind of afraid of, I'd rather educate myself. So we uh, we go do a lot of stuff like that. We go shoot clay and go to the go to the range and shoot targets and stuff like that. Yeah, a client recommended a book recently, and I realized really quickly that it was um, a book about a topic probably different than my belief system. And so, you know, of course I'm going to read it. You know what I mean? Like, why wouldn't you want to know the other side? You know, I think, I think people get paralyzed by, you know, what they want to see or think and then kind of move on. I mean, I know for myself, you know, I didn't have a lot of experiences with guns. I, I remember having an uncle that hunted, um, Louisiana's like sportsman's paradise. That's what it says on the the um, on <laughs> yep. the license plates. Um, but Minnesota's also like big into hunters. So one of the things that's sort of funny about my uh, wife's family is that in her living room um, or her parents' living room, there was a rack of guns, right, with ammo, like all right there. And no locks, no anything. <laughs> and I mean, like, no one even thought about it, like, for two seconds. And, I, of course, like a big idiot, you know, I we were talking about it at, at uh, my father-in-law's funeral. And I said, you know, what I think is the funniest thing that you guys probably never thought of ever in your life is that you had, yep. load, you had loaded guns in your front room <laughs> with like your 22 grandkids walking through there at all times, you know? So it's definitely a little different, um, culture, but I think that, that, you know, there's, there's too little of that. Don't you think? I mean, you know, one of the things, I mean, one of the greatest blessings that I've had in my life, you know, my, my, um, mom, you know, has been in a biracial relationship since I was four. So, you know, I've had a chance to go into the black community and kind of like, you know, just be a part of it, you know, kind of be a fly on the wall. And, uh, you know, it, it really provided, a you know, no pun intended, but it provided some color to my life that I wouldn't have had, 
you know, if I didn't have those experiences. So, I mean, have you, have you, you know, uh, it, so in terms of your um, fiance, aren't, is their family like really big into guns? Yeah. Her, um, her family's from Montana. So she grew up, her dad, her dad's a big, very typical Montana person. Um, he's like, he's a, a, a contractor, does construction. Um, so it's actually been really cool because, you know, my life, like my dad didn't know how to use a tool, didn't know how to fix an engine, didn't know how to build anything. Right. Afraid of guns. My, like my parents, we, I never even like had a BB gun or anything growing up and her family is the total opposite. So whenever we go over there to, to visit on weekends and stuff, <laughs> like I go and I help him finish a bathroom or lay concrete or put in rebar, or, you know, redo electrical. Cause it's all this stuff. that's like so foreign to me that I don't know. I feel like as a man, I need to know some of these things. So I, uh, I've gotten <clears throat> her family's added a lot of color to my life, which is super cool. Yeah, no, I mean, that would be cool. That is a little bit of my experience as well. Cause like my, my wife's family is, um, there are all these like handy, you know, guys that can like, you know, tear things apart and put them back together. And I cannot do any of that stuff, you know? Um, and so, you know, from that perspective, it, it's, it's sort of interesting, humbling and, and whatever. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. It's, it's really funny to like go do something and look at something and be like, dude, I have no idea how to do this. And then they're like, Oh, this is how you do it. I'm like, Hey, that's awesome. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, they, um, all right. So I think we can pretty much shut things down. I mean, anything, any, what, okay. No, no, no. Your parents talk to me a little bit about your parents. Okay. Yeah, man. Let's see. So my man, my mom is right now. She works for Gonzaga university. Um, she's, she teaches teachers. Basically she was a teacher all growing up. My dad, um, has been in the medical field. He's a physician's assistant. He did family practice. He did uh, <clears throat> orthopedics, and now he's going back into internal medicine for kind of to end his career. Um, you know, my uh, my childhood was a lot was was very interesting. I had um, you know my my parents are probably two of the most amazing people you'll ever meet. Um, but there was a lot of a lot of issues to work through growing up. You know, I had there was one of my very close family um, you know attempted suicide. There was that whole, whole kind of stuff to work through. Um, there was some, some drug abuse, going to rehab, dealing with things like that. So, um, you know, one of the things I learned as a kid was... Someone know, else not, going through rehab or you going through rehab? No, one of my parents. Okay. Um, so I had, you know, one of, my, one, of, one of my two parents kind of went through a very probably, man, 12, 15 years of, you know, issues with all that kind of stuff. Um, but it was all it was all one of those things where you kind of learn at a young age, some very important lessons of, you know, life isn't always perfect and life is hard and has a lot of stuff, but you got to use those opportunities to really like grow as a person. Um, and so my relationships with my family are super strong because we've kind of figured out and you've got to love people for who they are. And that includes yourself. Right. Yeah. And I think that was, and that's Paul, you something you and I talk about here a lot is yeah. the, your relationship with yourself and, seeing how people, you know, despite some of the things they've done and their own um, kind of missteps along the way is kind of that learning to love yourself for who you are was a huge piece. Um, and that was one of those gifts that even though it was hard as a kid, really kind of helps you put into perspective all of your life and all those things as you move forward and really kind of centers you pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I talked about that a little bit in this morning's video where, you know, I was watching this um, thing with Tony Robbins. And I have to say, like, so I watched this thing on Tony Robbins. Um, I'm not your guru. It's on Netflix right now. And even after watching it, I still don't know what I think about Tony Robbins, right? I mean, I will say that what he did in the show would seem like very impressive, to most people, I would say you and I do that stuff on a daily basis, right? Because, you know, most people don't go super deep. And I think the, the, the thing that you mentioned about parents, you know, people look at their parents, and this was a little bit of the theme that, that happened with the Tony Robbins thing uh, on the show. There was a lot of stuff about parenting and their relationships with parents. 
And he did say one thing that I, I really thought was brilliant. Um, he said, you can't blame them just for the bad stuff. You got to blame them for the good stuff too. You know, and I think that that is brilliant because a lot of who I've become as a man, you know, um, and, and my dad would even, even mention that, you know, some of the struggles that he's had, you know, seeing me get over those hurdles has been sort of inspiring for him, you know. But I think that that's, you know, people spend a lot of time, you know, talking about, you know, and, and not forgiving, you know, and not realizing that a part, big part of who they are, you know, is because they went through that struggle, you know. Um, and, and people tend to think that, you know, there's like this easy path to virtually anything when really everybody's kind of had a piece, you know, I mean, when I look at my kids, I would say that they've probably had struggles, you know, that, that kids struggle with, you know, there's, there's definitely, you are always exposed to drugs and depression and all these various things, but it's just how you navigate that map, you know, and, you know, how much, you know, ownership that you can take in that, in that place that allows you to kind of go on. I mean, like at, 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 you know, in your case, you know, you're 19 years old, you're, you're playing basketball. And then, I mean, you know, we can sort of end on this note. I mean, how do you, how do you become a doctor from there? I mean, that's a lot of school. I mean, how, you know, where's that passion? Obviously, you get some of that from your, your parents. Yeah, you know, I think there's kind of, in my view, two ways things happen in life. One is you wake up one day and you just go, this is what I'm going to do, and you do it. Um, the other one is it's just a lot of small things that add up that take you where you want to be. Um, and for me, it was the second piece, right? A lot. <clears throat> I didn't really... When I got done with undergrad, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, and I was kind of, I was lost. I mean, I remember I was working a job um, in Seattle. It was, I mean, it was a good job. I was making good money out of school, but I was just miserable. And I remember <clears throat> I like pulled over in my car and I called my mom and I was just crying hysterically. I'm like, I'm a 22 year old man. And I'm calling my mom and I'm just like, Dude, we already know, like, Brad, we already know just, you like, have mom like, I can't even like form a sentence because I'm just like, so miserable and so exhausted. And the don't fact want that to do it the life. fact that your mom could tell you something and you just take it as the word, right? We already know yeah. you have mommy issues, so keep going. <laughs> yeah, and I remember just like, you know, and it was kind of one of those moments where I was like, man, I got to figure out what I want to do. And I was just like so, so depressed and so sad and just so lost, and um, eventually just kind of realized, you know, I need to go back to school, and I went back, and I just. And then that was kind of the same idea of, you know, at that time I was like, man, finishing my PhD is going to be, that's so long down the road, right? It's going to take so much work. And I remember the conversation I had with my mom when I decided, she's like, yeah, it's going to be a long time, but what, the time's going to pass anyway. You just got to do the work. Um, and so that kind of helped me figure it out. But, um, and, you know, I don't really know exactly what it was that kind of made me go back to school. Um, I think it was just, I didn't feel fulfilled with what I was doing and I knew I wanted to go back and I wanted to live my life where it's like, I get to a point where I can look back and say, I couldn't have done any more work to get to a higher place of where I wanted to be. Um, and so that's kind of the same take I put on a lot of things, whatever I do in my life. I kind of just go, I'm going to give it everything I got and it's either going to work or it's not, but I'm going to look back and I'm never going to say I didn't give it everything I could have. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, when people talk about, well, why do college graduates make more money? Or why do, you know, masters or PhDs, why are they highly sought after in the marketplace? And it's not the level of knowledge always per se, right? It's often the stick-to-itiveness and knowing that those people can persevere, right? So if you see someone that you know, hasn't had, there's a hummingbird literally right outside my window right now. Um, but the, uh, but if you, if you haven't had that experience, you know, it's really hard to convey that to an employer, right? 
And, you know, you see a lot of highly educated people. I mean, everyone, you know, one of the best things that I saw recently was, you know, everybody talks about the Mark Zuckerbergs and these types of folks that dropped out of college, you know, um, but they don't focus on all the people that, you know, went on to also get great things that also had high levels of college, you know, and even like in the case of Mark Zuckerberg, you know, I mean, until he knew that there was a lot of revenue coming from that, he did not leave, you know? Yeah. And I think that there's way too many people that are kind of like trying to, you know, um, kind of gamble on their future. I saw that a lot in online poker where these like really brilliant young kids, you know, it, it's, well, okay. So, so I'm talking and I can't remember the, the guy's name was like Victor styles or something like that. I can't remember, but he's, he's a hip hop guy. And they, they asked him, um, what, you know, what was the first clue? Cause apparently the, his, his, his style is he doesn't, he's not overly verbose, right? He's not, you know, talking about being in Lambos and stuff like this and Ferraris and, you know, strip club, everything. Um, I've never listened to a song by the guy ever, but one of the things that he said that I thought was hilarious was he said um, they were asking him when he realized that the rap game didn't have as much money as people think. He said, well, yeah, when Warren G lived next door to me, you know, and he's like, he's like, don't get me wrong. I lived in a nice house. But when Warren G, the guy on the radio, lives next to you, you know that what he's rapping about ain't the truth, <laughs> you know. And so, yep. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. But I, I think I think that just relates to like a lot of the startup mentality where people think because we're in a startup right now. That's what Ethan Form is, you know. And I don't think people realize the the struggles and the lessons that you learn on a daily basis. And just how hard it is to navigate all of these different things. And so, um, I yeah, I think, I think that's one of the things that a lot of people don't, don't realize is things are pretty tough. Things are hard. And when things get tough, the best thing to do is to just keep pushing. Right. I mean, there was, I think one of the, the hardest things I've ever had to see is there was somebody who started our program with me at the same time. Um, and she got to the last, so kind of the way a PhD program works, you have coursework, you have research, you have like exams. Um, and then you have a dissertation that you have to finish. She got to like the last probably two or three months of her program after like four and a half years. And she just quit. She couldn't handle it anymore. Cause there was just, it's one of those things where it just kind of like constantly beats you down yeah. you know and eventually you're just like i can't i can't do it anymore and i quit and a lot of people quit right before that breakthrough right like you're so close to the end you know you've been training for a long time and you get hurt and you're yeah. just oh i'm not going to reach my goal i'm not going to retool and come back or you know you're in a business and things are going well and then you hit kind of a slide and it gets really really tough and you're in a spot where you're like okay i can either double down and put all my chips in and see what happens or I can just kind of fold up shop. And I think so many people fold up shop early. Well, in, in 2016, frankly, has been that free to perform, right? I mean, you know, going from five people to, you know, 51, 60 people, you know, in a very short period of time, you know, we definitely struggled with that movement and how to care for, many more people as the movement started to get more popular but at the same time those struggle without those struggles we aren't where we are right now which i think is a really awesome place you know and then just kind of keeping like you said to push but i think there's one thing um about the pushing part that kind of needs to be mentioned is the reflection part Right. If you don't have moments of reflection, you know, that's where it can be overwhelming. And then that's when you do quit. You know, if you can't find peace amongst the chaos, you know, I mean, I, I like to think that I work well in chaos. But anybody who thinks that they work well in chaos would actually work better <laughs> with occasional peace. 
You know what I mean? Because <laughs> that's when you come up with yeah. your really good ideas that allow you to get to kind of that next place. All right, Brad. Well, I think we know a lot more about you. Um, and anything they don't know, they can look at the Eat Perform Summer Camp videos. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> But uh, I appreciate you doing this. I think this was kind of a cool way to kind of get to know you and kind of a good um, final piece of the We Can Fix That book. You know, right now, you know, we're, we're just launching this. Um, there's obviously a lot of people who are very interested in it. It's going to be really interested six months from now, you know, to see, you know, the, the impact that it's made on people because I think it's, it's probably the best thing that we've ever put out. So... All right, man. It was great chatting right, with you. Thanks, and Paul. It was awesome. We'll, uh, we'll touch base soon. All right. Adios.